0: Looking back, having recorded this episode, um, I have been faced with the stark reality of, well, a difficult question, which is why? What, you know, what's the point? Why haven't I just dived in straight at the Battle of Trafalgar? And that's because, as you will see from this episode, it's all a bit of a wild goose chase. We end up essentially exactly where we begin, with all of the pieces in pretty much the same place. However, I did really feel like the events that I'm going to narrate in this episode are really worth looking into. And I've come to the conclusion, I think, that for me one of the real joys of learning about history, or in fact rather the moment at which I really first began to take joy in understanding history, was when I realised that it all strung together, it was when I realised that, that the classical period ended and flowed into the medieval period in a way that, that wasn't they weren't just discrete units. That, they were just a, that was really just a, a label put on top of what is a, a, a continuum, that you can see the lines that run through it. And for me, that's why it's worth learning about the run-up to the Battle of Trafalgar, and in fact why this whole thing is about the Trafalgar campaign rather than just the battle. Because I think without all of these events in the run-up, essentially it's just a load of ships shooting cannonballs at each other and sinking and exploding. And as much as that holds a very small boyish fascination still, it might as well just be a space battle in Star Wars as as a historical event if we just look at it on its own. In any case, having paid lip service to my insecurities, thank you very much for joining me for the second episode of Pedestals Kiss Me Hardy. Um, so we have he, Lord Nelson. Nelson. Yeah, Lord, Lord Nelson. Nelson. He was a very small man, diminutive little creature, short ass up a high oh, podium. Yeah, Grandpa is always going on about him. And do uh, you've got short man Nelson complex. What? Was he missing an arm? Or he lost an arm? Also, did he get an arrow in his eye in the battle? I seem to remember him losing an eye. And he lost an eye. An anti-establishment figure. Was it in the eighteen hundreds? He's on top of a column in Trafalgar Square. I mean, was this the Battle of Waterloo, I think? Fought the French. I we won, right? Big naval victory, was it? And, and was he fighting Napoleon? I think it was fighting Napoleon. The main thing I know about Trafalgar is it's part of the shipping forecast, so it must be in the English Channel. The outrageous ongoing affair with Lady Hamilton. My friend's beautiful standard poodle was actually called Nelson. Also, did he have a famous horse with a funny name? Trafalgar. On a clear night in Vancouver. Uh, particularly now that the winter nights are drawing in a little bit. You can look out across the harbour and predictably see about 10 or 15 of these huge container ships, which are really a part of the landscape of the city. And typically one of these container ships is about 350 meters long, about 45 meters wide, and it weighs about hundred thousand tons. It carries a GPS It carries a DGPS, apparently. I checked online, I don't know what a DGPS is, but there you go. It has an automatic radar plotting aid. It has an electronic chart system. It has a ship identification system. And it costs about $100 million to build. And despite that, in historical terms, it's a pretty low-risk investment. Because of its size, the largest ocean waves just kind of wash underneath it. All of its complex electronic equipment keeps it safe, keep it on course. If we zoom out a little bit, its huge capacity allows it to carry a cargo from cars to stuffed animals that allow it to mitigate any risk it might have in the changing markets. It can sell it for a predictable price. If we zoom out even further, it exists in a world where its destination is not going to become a hostile state. Its home port isn't going to be seized by an enemy regime. The ship isn't going to sink. It's not risking a fortune every time it embarks on a voyage. It was built by machines out of standardized parts, which are controlled and quality tested under international regulations. And if all of that goes horribly wrong, it's insured against disaster by huge financial institutions. Furthermore, this typical ship is crewed by about 20 to 30 people. And their lives are similarly surrounded by safety nets. In modern terms, they do really a a comparatively dangerous job, but they wear life jackets on deck, they have training in safety regulations, they're unionized, they receive a pension and a salary that keeps them and their family in good living conditions. And again, in the event of total disaster, they're, they're insured. And last episode, I posed a couple of questions both of which can usually be asked of any historical moment. And the two questions were, why do they do it? And what was it like? And for me, these cargo ships represent really one of the biggest obstacles to our answering both of those questions. These ships represent the incredible stability of most of our lives, hopefully. You know, if, if you live in a nation that's lucky enough to be enjoying this really very recent island of historical calm, even the broader economic system that these ships represent is part of this calm that we live in. These ships connect up the world, and this interconnectedness keeps our lives safe. Just like, I suppose, a load of strings tied together forming a net, they form a sort of spring against which, if something goes horribly wrong, we sort of are softened, we we bounce off. For example, if suddenly today the city of London had no food in it at all. Within a few hours, really, ships could be on their way and vans could be on their way and we could respond to that disaster and we could sort it out quite quickly. In other words, we are on levels right now from our immediate safety, here and now, me in my office, sat in my chair, right up to way more abstract levels of safety, stability of our societies, the nations we live in, are padded and insulated against the potential chaos of the world around us. Most humans today live lives that are unimaginably secure compared to those of most people 200 years ago. And in reverse, and this is really where our problem lies, most people 200 years ago live lives that were unimaginably vulnerable to total disaster. 200 years ago if the city of London suddenly had no food in it whatsoever, people would die lots and lots of people would die or the city would have to totally empty. This is just something I'd I'd like you to keep in mind and reflect upon as we make our way through this episode. There are gonna be lots of points at which I'd like you just to think, ah, if this goes wrong, they can't pick up the phone. Before technology and industrial capitalism and communications, welfare state knocked some of the edges off life. It was perfectly possible that your ship could sink your crew could mutiny, your country could put you up against a wall and have you shot. Now just to give you a really quick recap, last episode I gave you a, an overall view of what things were like in Napoleonic Europe in terms of the military situation and a bit of a run through Nelson's life up until the beginning of our story. Now you may remember that I discussed the Peace of Amiens and that was a brief window of peace in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. But after the recommencement of hostilities in 1803 at the end of the peace of amiens right up to the beginning of 1805 the royal navy was in a sort of a cold war with the french not really a cold war in that there was quite a lot of fighting but but in that nothing really decisive was going on there was a blockade of all the major french ports to give a bit of an overview and it's difficult to count these ships for a lot of reasons but to to broadly give you a picture of how things are going. The British have about 80 ships of the line. I've used that term before, but these are the big ships that really count, and the French have got about 40 of these. So on the face of it that that sounds great, doesn't it? You've got 80 ships, your enemy have 40. And that's why the British are on the outside keeping the French bottled up in port. They're the predators really in this situation. But the situation isn't really as rosy as those numbers suggest because those 80 ships have to cover the whole of the international British Empire. And the thing is, the French only have to be successful once. Just like a load of prison guards guarding prisoners, the prison guards have to be at every single exit, every window, every hole in the wall. Whereas the prisoners, in order to escape, only need to find one unguarded door. And if the French fleet can do this, then they can take the channel, they can occupy it, remember, for just a couple of days And Napoleon's planned invasion of Britain can go ahead. Now at this point Nelson was in charge of the Mediterranean fleet and he maintains a blockade there for 22 months, pretty much never leaving his ship. And this is really the first time that Nelson has actually been in charge of a whole theatre of war rather than just a group of ships. And that might sound odd given that we've heard he's done loads of top-notch sailing and he's a great guy, that this is just the first time that he's actually in charge of, of something properly. But in fact, when he was given command of the Mediterranean, he was junior to 73 other admirals in the Navy. So it kind of puts paid to, to the fact that he was he was definitely held in in high regard. But this, I suppose, this raises one of the central problems with studying history. And this is what might be called the historian's curse. The issue is we know how it ends. So for us, the choice looks like you can have Lord Keith, Or you can have Sahide Parker, who didn't do himself very proud at Copenhagen. Or you can have Horatio Nelson, who is god of war and saviour of Britannia. And of course, that sounds obvious to us in retrospect, but it's really important to remember at the time, and you'll forgive me if this is blatantly obvious, that they didn't know he was going to fight or win the Battle of Trafalgar. Importantly, neither did he. To employ an analogy, to think about it like a football or a soccer team, if a new manager takes over, and they try out a new formation or a new starting 11, and the team win, we still don't think, oh, he's the greatest, that's it. We've got it sorted now, we've solved football. We've always got to play like this now. In fact, I would bet that a, a much larger part of your mind is taken up with the thoughts of, oh, well, that maybe was lucky. or why did that happen? Was it him? Was it the players? Was it something, was it the, the other team? Were they doing something weird? Might've been luck, it might've been coincidence. And the same applies to Nelson. And in fact, like a lot of innovators he had a really rocky relationship with the authorities he actually remarks in his own diary quote my conduct is measured by the admiralty by the narrow rule of law when i think it should be measured by that of common sense end quote in other words what he's saying is we can see with common sense and with hindsight that the things nelson are doing work that he's making great changes that have directly led to great results that weren't coincidence they weren't lucky but at the time it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, either on the face of it because it might seem disrespectful of, uh, of tradition, but more pertinently because it's risky, it's horribly risky, changing any way of doing things, any dogma. If we take this right back to, to the analogy I made at the start of the first episode of Dick Fosbury coming out 1968 Olympics, all of his hopes, all of, to some extent, the country's hopes for, for, for that event, for the year, and he's going to totally change the way they do it. And what an idiot he would look if he ran up and sort of tried to jump over it backwards and just crashed through it. We would certainly not be saying, well, of course you've got to choose the engineering student. He knows exactly what he's doing. And in fact, if we apply that to to the analogy that that, that we just brought up, we've got to remember that, that in this situation, if just 10, 15 of those 80 British ships get captured by the French, suddenly you've got 65 against 55. And that is a much less certain prospect. So you can't blame them for putting the kind of small C conservative leaders in charge. And this this bias that we have towards seeing the innovators as as great, um, it gives us two blind spots that we need to acknowledge. Firstly, it makes the decision makers seem woolly headed and indecisive and kind of idiotic. And we see that in films, it's a kind of trope in films. If you think about it, that that we get the 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 old buffers who want to do things the old way, and they want to do things the old way because it works, because it's not risky. And on a a more personal level, I think the blind spot it gives us is that it takes away from the individual's accomplishments. If we look at the results of their actions as inevitable, then they are much less impressive. We've got to remember that the people who are putting forward these innovations have no idea if the risks that they're going to take are going to lead to complete disaster and to personal disgrace for them. So in any case, Nelson has, you know, they have taken a punt on him and they've given him the top job in the Mediterranean. Now, the Mediterranean was totally key to this moment. Why, why is that? Because one of, well, one of the repeated false assumptions about Trafalgar uh, from the survey that I conducted right before I started this series is that it took place in the English Channel. And that makes perfect sense. With our history of that body of water, with the geography of Europe, and to be honest, if we were writing a a film about this time, about a fictional uh, battle that happened, we'd probably place it in the English Channel. But now the blockade's job was basically to stop the French from concentrating. They were split up into relatively smaller squadrons, and it was to keep them in port, to stop them from concentrating into a large force and taking the Channel and forcing a crossing. And the French fleets on the north and the in the west coast of France at Boulogne and Calais and Brest were so close to Britain that they were under really close blockade. On the other hand, with the French domination of Italy and, and politically of Spain, the Mediterranean was pretty much home turf for France, whereas it was a good couple of weeks sailing from Great Britain. And the British fleet there was was Operating out of tiny bases in Gibraltar and Malta, and if something went wrong, they would have to sort themselves out. And if a big combined fleet was going to come and force the channel, it would be getting itself together in the Mediterranean. And it would be coming around the long way, liberating those other French ports on the way round, picking up momentum as it went. And as I said, the Mediterranean theatre is a really long way from home. Communication takes a couple of weeks to sail there. So whoever was the theatre commander there had to be on the spot, had to be making decisions off, entirely off their own back. And as we've already seen, that really suited Nelson down to the ground. Now, I'd like to introduce a bit of a concept over this episode and the next that will help us to see this conflict more clearly than we might. Um, Dan Carlin, who's the sort of godfather of history podcasting. If you're listening to this and you haven't listened to him, then I'm very touched that you've chosen to listen to me first. But Dan Carlin always tends to choose. He tends to go for military history and he tends to choose what we would call asymmetrical battles or or conflicts. And he says for, for the simple reason that's because if you're looking at two sides fighting each other, it's more interesting if they're different. It's not very interesting looking at two sides that are identical. And I want to establish, I think, that this is asymmetrical as a conflict that despite all of the images we have of these times and despite on the face of it it really looks like well it's a sailing boat and it's another sailing boat. They're just two fleets and they look pretty much exactly the same. I want to establish that I think this is an asymmetrical conflict as much as any other. Here's one reason why. Nelson was in charge of really bottling up these fleets in the Mediterranean and this wasn't an easy job. He was keeping his forces together and efficient for two years through two winters And men were constantly dying of disease. They were injured in the day-to-day running of the ships. His forces morale would be constantly threatened by boredom. And these ships couldn't just stay in harbor. They needed to be outside the enemy ports, constantly waiting, beaten by storms every single winter. And Nelson, in one of his less glamorous talents, was a really good administrator and seemed to really prioritize taking care of his men. He made it a priority to find supplies, fruits and vegetables and things from Spain and Italy. And the British are sustaining this constant blockade on the open sea year-round, whereas the French are safe in port. And this means the British ships were often in really bad shape. They were poorly maintained. They had weeds and barnacles on the bottom of the hull. Everything you'd expect to happen, essentially, to a block of wood in the ocean. They were leaking. They were falling apart. And furthermore, the French ships were generally thought to be better in the first place. Often, a captured French ship would then be used as a blueprint to base new designs of British ships off. However, so that, I mean, that's a disadvantage for the British. There is a, a reversal of this. There is a flip side. And that's how the British Navy was in constant practice. They couldn't sit in port. They were cruising up and down outside these French harbors for two years. And that meant sailing. The business of sailing these boats, practicing for two years, firing the cannons, doing gunnery practice, everything that will keep you motivated and honed to real professionalism and the French at this point are sleeping comfortably in port. So these fleets are two different entities in the way that they function. The important thing to realize at this point is that Nelson was planning for Trafalgar for two years. It wasn't a chance encounter. He knew it was going to happen at some point, and his job was to make it happen. His job was a sort of paradox, keeping the French bottled up in port, but also he had to see if he could tempt them out if he could get them out of harbour and destroy them. Andrew Lambert, the historian, says, quote, the overriding aim was to get inside the enemy's plans, to outthink them and anticipate their next move. This and only this would set up the next battle of annihilation, End quote. This phrase, battle of annihilation, gives us really the core of the strategic problem facing the British. There's a kind of Navy doctrine that was first theorised by the British in the 17th century. It's called the fleet in being. And this concept is basically that you don't have a navy in order that it can go out and do things and fight people and control trade and all sorts of stuff. You keep your fleet in harbour safe, ready at any point to go out and have a battle in theory. It could at any point do that. And the idea is, is that this gives you a sort of projected power, the threat of power, a little bit like the nuclear deterrent nowadays. You're never even necessarily going to use it, but so long as you have that navy in port, your enemy needs to deal with it, needs to have a plan for how they're going to deal with it. And this threat of your navy in port works particularly well for naval warfare because really wacky things happen at sea. Really unpredictable things can happen. You can see it in the Second World War, the Battle of Midway, uh, the Battle of Pearl Harbor, in the First World War during the Battle of Jutland, that two fleets come together that, On paper might have different strengths and different weaknesses, as we said asymmetrical warfare. Some have aircraft carriers and planes, some have battleships, and you just can't know what's gonna happen until they come together. So, so long as you have a fleet in port, even if it's a fairly small fleet, so long as it's got the ability to go out and strike at the enemy, the enemy is always off balance thinking, well they might come out and they might just, they might Fosbury flop us. They might have some new idea that totally wipes the floor with our whole fleet. And also chance bears a far larger role in naval warfare. You see this at the Battle of the Nile, as I narrated last episode, that the Orient just explodes halfway through. That's the French flagship and it just explodes. So rather than it being a sort of slow rumbling battle for several hours, one of the ships is just gone. And after that, really, the, the British have won that fight. And it doesn't, that doesn't apply to, to land armies because armies on land don't just all simultaneously explode. It doesn't happen. And this is sort of what the French were doing. They were doing this fleet in being idea. They were keeping their ships safe in port. And as long as that threat was there, the threat of them breaking out and controlling the channel and totally beheading the whole British Empire was kept alive. You know, once that channel crossing had happened, the other, you know, 60 British ships of the line can do whatever they like. It doesn't matter. There's 100,000 elite French soldiers on British soil. That's going to be the end of things. And Nelson identified it wasn't going to be enough just to win these tactical victories over the French. It wasn't gonna be enough just to occasionally pick them off and have these indecisive confrontations. In order to neutralize this threat, he had to cause what he called a battle of annihilation in which the French would be totally destroyed. And in order to make that happen, intelligence was really, really significant because he needed to know exactly where they were gonna be. He needed to know exactly how he could force this confrontation. And to do that, he was making this enormous intelligence network Before radar communications and telephones and and so forth, that involved capturing enemy ships, seeing if you could find charts and plans, their code books, their signal books. He even had a bizarre, almost algorithmic way of deducting where the enemy would be. He kept a weather log very, very strictly every morning, as many captains would. But he could use this almost as a as an algorithm that he could look back if he saw an enemy fleet he could look back two weeks and think, Well, the weather in Toulon two weeks ago was like this, so if I set sail two weeks ago with that wind, I would be aiming to go here. And to sort of t- 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 to then map into the future exactly where they were going. Now in eighteen oh four, the commander in Toulon, which is the French, the main Mediterranean naval base, is an admiral called La Touche Travis, and he's uh, a really senior admiral and he's kind of the old man of the French Navy and he's probably the best that they've got he's the only one to ever have inflicted a defeat on Nelson which he did a few years earlier at Boulogne and Nelson and La touche have spent this blockade playing this game of cat and mouse in and out of port Nelson was just hovering over the horizon from Toulon as if to say hey you can come out, it's fine, no problem and La could see straight through this I imagine was probing out to see if there was some way he could slip past the British fleet to see how the British would react. And at one point, La touche makes a fairly major move out of port. And Nelson, who wants to draw him out further, backs off, shadowing him, drawing him out further. And La touche actually re- retreats back into port. He can see exactly what's going on. But he sends a letter back to Paris, which is then published, saying that Nelson had run away when he set sail. And that's in the British newspapers and the French ones. And on hearing this, Nelson was furious. And as we've already seen, he is a fairly soft-spoken man. And he remarked that he would make La Touche Trévie eat the letter once he had beaten him. So there's a serious rivalry beginning to mount between these two men. They're perfectly set up for a final showdown. However, disappointingly, and this is just one of those things that happens in history where it doesn't quite go as the scriptwriters would want, In a maybe more Game of Thrones development than a Hollywood one, La Touche-Tréville climbs to the top of a hill overlooking Toulon Harbour on the 18th of August 1804, as he regularly does to observe the British fleet, and he promptly dies of a heart attack, which is just, that's how it goes sometimes. And he's replaced by a less proven, probably less capable admiral called Pierre Villeneuve, However, we can salvage a touch of drama from this, and that's that this new commander, Villeneuve, is the same Villeneuve who you may remember commanded one of the two French ships that escaped from Nelson at the Battle of the Nile. And now they're on for their showdown. Meanwhile, out of the Mediterranean, in the Atlantic and in the Channel, things are developing. In the Channel, just to recap, Napoleon has his 100,000 men still preparing there swelling in size every day, looking across at the cliffs of Dover. He has thousands of craft in this newly expanded harbour at Boulogne. The Channel Fleet doesn't just have to wait there and wait for them to come out. You may be thinking, if I was in that situation, I might try and proactively fix it. Well, if you can destroy that fleet in being, then it's not a threat anymore. If the invasion fleet, all of those clunky transports could just be sunk. However, there are really serious problems with attacking a harbour. The main one really is is that in a harbour behind breakwaters and so forth, ships can only go in one at a time. And they're, they're designed for that to be difficult. And many of them would have sandbanks and stuff that only expert pilots would know exactly how to get around and so forth. So trying to enter them with a hostile fleet is going to be slow and very, very vulnerable. And furthermore, any guns on land can be behind stone fortifications. And they're not going to sink. You've got to really batter them to get rid of them, whereas these guns just need to put a few holes in a ship and it may well be on its way to the bottom. So the Admiralty and the commander of the Channel Fleet, Lord Keith, hatched a cunning plan. And I like to imagine this as them occupying an interview room at the Admiralty and a wacky interview montage going on, taking all these ideas from inventors and so forth and it really was it was an open call to amateur military inventors lots of them came up with ideas how are we going to fix this traditional tactical problem there were suggestions of sinking ships loaded with rubble in the mouth of Boulogne harbour so just just blocking it up and then that fleet would be useless plans of sending in a, a fleet of fire ships these had worked really well against the Spanish armada basically setting a ship on fire and just pointing it in the direction of the enemy fleet. My favourite of these plans was to launch a fleet of, of balloons uh, with clockwork timers over Boulogne Harbour, with rockets in them, which would fire off as timed by these clockwork devices. And as I said, this is like this is the beginning of uh, such a weird technological blending point. These are modern prototype weapons. These are like. Well, in the Second World War, we'll see that air power will come to dominate naval warfare, that planes coming off of carrier craft will be the really important thing. They've spotted this 150 years before that point. They've gone, well, look, if you can just have something flying over the top. Unfortunately, the rather goofy form that that can take 150 years earlier is hot air balloons with clockwork rockets on them. And eventually, uh, an American inventor uh, named Robert Fulton who had actually tried to sell his ideas for submarines to the French, um, but had been met with, uh, I'm sure a dismissive French, uh, proposed a combined attack of fire ships, of torpedoes and mines. And the British leadership agreed. So on the night of the 2nd of October 1804, a mixture of craft set out to undertake this, this attack at night. The torpedoes, I think, bear some examination. They basically involve a young officer, and it would have to be an officer because it essentially is a craft so it needs, you know a gentleman in control of it this officer rowing the torpedo right up to the enemy ship which is packed with explosives pulling out a pin and then swimming back to to a friendly ship and this job was so dangerous the instructions were actually for the for the young officer to keep the pin in order to prove that he had pulled it and the fire ships and the torpedoes were launched and as much as i am rooting for this madcap scheme and i hope you are too it doesn't really work out. Fulton, unfortunately, is a bit ahead of his time. A few French ships are sunk, but the threat of the invasion is still very much alive. A few days after this, probably one of the largest developments occurs. Up until this point, the Spanish have been in an odd state of neutrality. They were similar in relationship to the French as the US were to the British in the First World War, in that they're aligned with the French, they're supplying them all sorts of things, but they're strictly neutral. And the Spanish were, as I mentioned last episode, a really powerful naval empire of, of the previous generation of empires, really. And they still had a really big navy. But just after the failed raid on Boulong Harbor, a Spanish convoy of treasure ships from Montevideo were intercepted by a British squadron. They were apprehended under British rules that basically said, we get to decide whether or not you're helping the French. We get to decide whether those are military supplies or whether it's just food or trading. However, this time, the, uh, the British see that these treasure ships are stuffed with money, gold and spices and all sorts. And they say, you're going to give that to the French and you're going to help fund their war. And that's a terribly convenient thing for the British to say because it means they get to confiscate it. However, this time, the Spanish captain refuses. He refuses to stop. The British fire across their bows. the warning shot. There's some shouted negotiations with bullhorns across from the ships, and it, it devolves. The British open fire in earnest, and just like at the Nile, very quickly the Spanish ship Mercedes explodes, and about a million pounds worth of, of gold and silver falls into British hands. However, that is pretty much the end of the good news for the British the explosion on the mercedes killed over 200 people that included a lot of civilians this operates very much like the lusitania did during the first world war for the americans the spanish issue a declaration of war and this is a good example of the idea that i introduced at the start of this episode that things can just evolve incredibly quickly in this time and more than anything that can be often be down to slow communications the commander of the british squadron couldn't telephone home and say, what should I do? Look, they're not stopping. What should I do? And moreover, the Spanish couldn't say, look, they're going to kill us. We need to stop. Or should we carry on? And furthermore, the nature of the ships means that they are prone to just exploding really quickly. If this happened today, there are so many stops and checks that would happen before it got to this point. That would stop a huge international crisis breaking out. But it does. And the Spanish declare war. And this is really bad news. The Spanish fleet essentially adds its numbers to the French and suddenly the British are no longer enjoying overwhelming strength. As I said previously, 80 British ships of the line to about 40 French. This pretty much brings it up to 80 on 80 and much more concentrated around the Mediterranean theater, which is key to potentially taking the channel and ending this whole war. The entire long Spanish coast is now hostile territory which, rather than supplying Nelson's Mediterranean fleet, is now ready to attack anyone that passes it. So the French now have an opportunity. If they can get together enough of these ships, if they can get enough of a numerical advantage, then they can do it. And they have various incredibly complicated plans to carry this out. They try to distract the British, they try to draw off as much of their strength as they possibly can. And I think this gives us an insight into into some of their Uh, preoccupations that they really never consider, well let's just fight them, let's just have a battle and we'll we'll win the battle and then we'll go and take the channel they're they're obsessed with the idea of of outsmarting the British getting them out of the way and doing it without a fight and these plans include diversions, they're going to go off to the Caribbean, they're going to cause a real fuss there, they threatened even to land forces in Ireland, which at this point could have been a real backdoor to, to getting onto the British mainland in January of 1805, there's a bit of a false start. Villeneuve tries to break out of port. He tries to he tries to get out. Nelson scuttles to intercept him off Italy, thinks he's missed him. He goes into his petulant slump only to find out that Villeneuve hits some bad weather and he sailed straight back into port. But there is a real sense here that everyone is on tenterhooks, that at any moment the French are going to try it. They're going to make their, their bid and that this big confrontation is, is coming and of all people, Nelson is the most desperate for it. So the final plan that actually comes into effect in 1805 is as follows from the French. Jean Tombe, who is who is another French admiral, is in Brest. And he, this is on the northwest tip of Brittany. And he's going to break out and he's going to sail across the Atlantic and join Mississi at Martinique. And Mississi was already in the Caribbean, essentially to, to, to do what I just said, to distract the British. And Villeneuve is going to break out of Toulon, which is on the southeast corner of France in the Mediterranean and he's going to go and join them at Martinique. And then they're going to recross the Atlantic together as a whole fleet under Janton, and they're going to occupy the Channel, and the British are not going to know what hit them. They're going to be scattered to the four winds. However, unbeknownst to the French leadership, Missisi has missed the message that says he's going to stay in the Caribbean. He's already begun to cross back to Rochefort, and that's in the kind of scoop of the Atlantic, the Bay of Biscay, which is between France and Spain. In any case, that bit's already gone wrong, but surely the rest of it will go all right. Well, on the 27th of March, Jean tries to break out of Brest and he's shadowed by the British blockading forces and he doesn't like his chances and he sails back into port. So already the plan has gone really spectacularly wrong in every way that it could have. And this is a good demonstration really of how Napoleon's epoch-changing grand strategy on land just did not translate to sea. You can't predict where people are gonna be at what point, which way the wind's gonna be blowing ultimately. At the end of March, unaware that all this is falling apart, Villeneuve successfully breaks out of Toulon. Nelson received word on the 4th of April that he's, he's left, that Villeneuve's out, and he's in a really sticky spot. We see this difficulty in the the huge area and the slowness of communication, the technological limits that I discussed in the last episode. He has to guess where Villeneuve is going, and he bets that he's going east, that he's going to Alexandria or Malta or Sicily. So he heads to Palermo to, to intercept him. On the 18th of April, a couple of weeks later, Nelson gets word that the French have just passed Gibraltar 10 days earlier. So this problem of communication is, is, is really making life difficult for Nelson. The British have this strange this chunk of, of the tip of Spain, Gibraltar. It's at the very straits with, with North Africa. It's the only way to get from the Mediterranean into the Atlantic. And I detail that because you might not know it. And if you don't, then the whole thing doesn't really make much sense. And they've been there since 1704, since the War of Spanish Succession. The British have got this tiny little tip. And they're still there today, in fact. And it's separated from North Africa by about 14 kilometers of ocean. So it's easily within sight. Anything coming through the Straits of Gibraltar can be seen, can be controlled to some extent by the British. But they can only let Nelson know at the speed of their fastest little cutter, their fastest little sloop that they can send off to him. So Nelson finds out two weeks later. Nelson sets out in, in hot pursuit. He's fearing an attack on the Channel, and he thinks he's, you know, he's let the country down. At Cape Trafalgar, Cape Trafalgar, And this is where I would look knowingly into the camera if this weren't a podcast. A Portuguese ship uh, tells him that the French fleet have sailed west across the Atlantic, presumably to attack the Caribbean as far as Nelson is concerned. However, this is essentially just a rumour. Again, we go back to that, they don't know what's going to happen. The real possibility is that Villeneuve could could have gone west over the horizon and then turned north, and that he is heading for the Channel. And Nelson has to make this choice entirely on his own back. He thinks, surely, If Villeneuve was heading north, a British frigate or something would have seen him, and it would have come to tell him. But then again, that very ship could be racing towards him as he's thinking that. And if he's gone out into the middle of the Atlantic, that frigate isn't going to be able to find him to tell him. And I can only imagine the stress of a decision like that. This is a good point to look into a bit deeper, something that I mentioned last episode, that these captains had a huge degree of freedom to employ their own discretion but they could also be held responsible personally for decisions they made. And 50 years before this time, in uh, 1756-57, there was a famous case of Admiral Bing, which sounds kind of like an Agatha Christie title. But Admiral Bing was sent at the outbreak of the Seven Years' War to stop the French from capturing Menorca. He sailed there. There's lots of debate about what happened, but essentially he engaged the French indecisively and he decided that the French were, was, were in a better position than him. He decided that the only sensible thing to do was to retreat back to Gibraltar and gather his forces, and Mahon, the, the capital of Menorca, fell shortly afterwards. And Bing, in that decision made what I think we would look at now or what we would now think as to be sort of his decision to make, and if it was right or wrong is up for debate, but it wasn't made in bad faith, and he was the only one who was really equipped to make it. However, as much as we might think that, Bing was summoned to London. He underwent a court-martial, and he was sentenced to death for failure to do his utmost. And this attitude was the result of an act of parliament called the Articles of War. And this was a sort of a, a Bible for naval conduct, the guiding principles of which would steer captains in the decisions that they make. And it contained that phrase, failure to do your utmost. And this, I don't know, it seems like a pretty straightforward incentive system to encourage individuals to strive for success that you need to do your utmost. But its its efficacy is double edged and is very subtle. There's historian, Nicholas Roger, and he, he sums up the effects quite well, so I'm gonna quote him at length. He concludes that this set up in the Royal Navy, quote, a culture of aggressive determination which set British officers apart from their foreign contemporaries, and which in the time gave them a steadily mounting psychological ascendancy. More and more in the course of the century and for long afterwards, British officers encountered opponents who expected to be attacked and more than half expected to be beaten, so that the latter went into action with an invisible disadvantage which no amount of personal courage or numerical strength could entirely make up for. End quote. I I don't know, this, this whole episode is a reminder that behind the silk stockings and powdered wigs and everything is a brutal, brutal time. Barbaric, really, as we would now think of it. this system of the articles of war is just a system of incentives that got the best out of the situation and as we can see to use roger's words the quote culture of aggressive determination end quote that that one threw at trafalgar was created by these rules however the french did pretty much exactly the same thing particularly in the revolutionary army pre-napoleon in which generals for losing battles were basically dubbed traitors to the revolution and they were usually killed and this resulted in not in striving for greatness, as Rogers suggests, but in just avoiding battles altogether. And I think the subtle distinction we need to draw is that it's notable the Articles of War, particularly in Bing's case, didn't punish his defeat. They punished his failure to engage a second time. And that's an important distinction. In the French Navy, this system had the, the totally opposite effect due to morale, really as much as anything. The punishment for defeat of French admirals, already very thin on the ground, wielding inferior forces, just gave them a sort of hangdog expectation of defeat and that their country was going to punish them for it. However, in the Royal Navy, really, which was overfilled with able competitive officers and which had the numbers to take a few losses, it actually created an atmosphere of really of stiff competition, of taking risks. And maybe that sometimes meant they might have taken losses that they could have avoided, but it meant they constantly engaged with the enemy in a decisive and meaningful way. In any case... Nelson pursues Villeneuve towards the Caribbean, he decides it's the Caribbean, and he writes in his diary, quote, if I fail, if they are not gone to the West Indies, I shall be blamed to be burnt in effigy, end quote. And as a reflection on, you know, what happened to to, to Admiral Bing, and to skip ahead a bit, a little, in the light of this, his last words, quote, thank God I have done my duty, end quote, take on a bit of a darker light. And just as a reflection on this, I think we can see this dynamic really nowadays at play, with modern celebrity culture and modern, I suppose what's now being called cancel culture, but has existed for a long time in the form of the public trials that people undergo on Twitter. And I think there's a really good reason why normal people don't have last words like, thank God I have done my duty. We we, we don't live in the assumption that we're going to be judged on every single one of our actions. So perhaps, and we'll of course go much more into this at the, the final accounting, but Nelson's last words can be seen as thank God I didn't screw up, rather than thank God I did something wonderful. And in this sense, we can see that the national hero is maybe sort of held hostage by the nation. In the meantime, Villeneuve somehow has it in his head that Nelson is at Alexandria, that he's gone to Egypt, that he never turned around to pursue him. He picks up Gravina, who's a Spanish admiral. He assembles a, a combined fleet of French and Spanish ships. And they're well on their way across the Atlantic by this point, he, he thinks, to meet with Missici and jean The mood on the ships is interesting. It's, it's very different. A French lieutenant on the uh, Entrepide says, quote, misled by certain signs and by skillfully managed rumours, he, Nelson, went as far as Egypt in search of us, end quote. He goes on, quote, the boredom of this crossing and the hesitations of the command has led to a certain lassitude, one consequence of which was that my brother Oliver, then a midshipman aboard the Fougaut, resigned on arrival at Martinique. I tried to dissuade him, but he said he was tired of that idle life," End quote. And we get this sense of, I think, a slightly reluctant French Navy resting on their laurels a little bit, feeling like they're not really in danger at all, unaware that they are being pursued. A kind of lackadaisical attitude to things. Nelson, on the other hand, is, is pursuing. He's slowed a little bit by a ship called the Superb, and we get a flash of the, the goodwill he was famous for. He's slowed down by the Superb because you can only go as quickly as your, your slowest ship. And he sent a letter to Captain Keats of the Superb. He said, quote, My dear Keats, I am fearful that you may think that the Superb does not go as fast as I could wish. However, that may be, for if we all went ten knots, I could not think it fast enough. Yet I would have you assured that I know and feel that the Superb does all which is possible for a ship to accomplish. And I desire that you will not fret upon the occasion. End quote. And I think there are maybe some leadership qualities we can learn from here. He's aware of, of how much people like him. And he's, he's anticipating that they're going to feel like they're disappointing him and he's, he's, he's cutting that off and saying, no, don't worry, it's, it's, it's all fine. He's also aware that make, making people feel crap about things isn't going to help. So morale is, is high in the British fleet. They feel they're led by somebody that they can trust and, and who trusts them. And in contrast to this goodwill, in fact, and, and this command relationship, Villeneuve is not trusted at all by Napoleon. He sent, uh, Napoleon has, has sent an army general with Villeneuve to report back on his conduct. This army general even holds the orders for Villeneuve's final destination. And he gets to decide when to let Villeneuve, who is the commanding officer of the whole fleet, he gets to decide when he's going to know where he's actually going. So instead of mutual trust and communication, the French are operating really under, it's, it feels to me like an assumption of failure and that they're really just waiting to find out who's going to be blamed. So with these fleets crawling across the Atlantic after each other at about 10 miles per hour, I think it's a good time to to take a look around at what these ships are actually like and, and what life on them was actually like. Now, the thing that really interests me about these ships is that, well, armies of this time had kind of like two generals each wielding an enormous weapon. It's not like a battlefield nowadays in Iraq or Afghanistan or or, or Syria where you've got lots of individuals each making tiny decisions about what they're going to do. But rather, in this time, these two generals with 10,000 guys or 20,000 guys wielding them like a huge weapon, telling them when to reload, where to point their guns, when to fire, all of that. And naval warfare is this under even more magnification. The captain of the ship is really directing a huge weapon on which each man is not fighting in the individual sense, but is operating as a single element of a huge machine. And the ships we're talking about here are what are called line-of-battleships, and I've used that, or ships of the line, I've used that phrase before. And that basically means, well, ships are split into rates, right down first rate, right down to to sixth rate, and first rate being the biggest ones. And anything above a third rate is a a line-of-battleship first rate has about 100 guns over three decks, a second rate about 80, and we'll look at these ships more closely next episode as they approach the battle, but to give you a sense of them, each of these ships is about 180 meters long, 16 meters wide, the top of the main mast is about 60 meters above sea level. As I mentioned they have two or three gun decks, but uh, aside from this they have at least one more deck below that, and then the hold and then they have an open deck where the sailing happens, and then they have a quarter deck above that, which is a sort of metanine level on top of the command for, for, for the command to, to sort of view things from. So all said, they've got about seven stories, and all of this is propelled by tons and tons of sailcloth. They have three upright masts, as well as a bowsprit, which is a sort of mast that projects forward, carrying about 30 sails with names that you may have heard before, like mainsail, to really great ones like the flying jib or the spanker which we can all be very mature about and agree is hilarious. Um, All said, they have a displacement of about 3,000 tonnes, and that's before you pack them full of cannon and stores and crew and things. And that might sound huge, but when you consider that their crew could be anywhere from 700 to 1,000 men, they've got pretty cramped. In any case, these are what we call line-of-battle ships, and that means that they can be, basically, they can hold their own in battle. One fascinating aspect of this era is that these ships are all totally bespoke. As I've said before, I'll say it again, these are the technological apex of 7,000 years of evolution of a technology, and they are honed to the absolute edge of what is possible. The first rates, those those ships with 100 guns or more, they are really, the, they're, they're at the physical limits of what can be done with wood and sails. Some of the really, really big ships suffer from what's called hogging, which is basically sagging under their own weight. It's where the ship would become slowly sort of banana shaped because it's, Bow and its stern were out of the water more often, or, or supported by less of the water, and so it would slowly bend over time. So they're really at the mercy of, of physics, and more obviously so than modern ships. If you have like a, a nuclear engine, as most modern aircraft carriers do, you have a little more leeway in terms of the you know the angle of the hull to the water and so forth. And I'm sure modern battleships and aircraft carriers and so forth are very very strictly designed, but but you've got a, a bit more space for, 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 for design features. To the age of sail battleships are these compromises of hundreds of different factors. The thickness of the hull, the number of cannon there, their height above the waterline, speed, firepower, maneuverability, the actual weight of, of the cannons, how big they're gonna be, the men, the stores. And the end result is these quite beautiful, kind of curved, almost organic shapes of these ships. And this individuality, that each of these ships have, is then crystallized in the ship's name and its figurehead. And I think this is key to the myth that we have of these ships, the romanticization of them. And some of the names are very appropriate. You know, the Victory, for obvious reasons, We that, that makes sense to us. The Bird was a tiny eight-gun vessel. The Neptune, you know, the god of, of the ocean. They're often very evocative. The Chameleon, for example, which was a tricksy little vessel that captured over 30 enemy ships by trickery often. The Carcass, that was a bomb vessel that Nelson himself served on. And often ships' names have really obscure origins. There was a French ship called the Bucontor, which is basically named after the state barge of the Doge of Venice, which is itself then a name of mythic origins, perhaps a portmanteau, Italian word meaning ship of gold occasionally in foreign languages to slip into the Royal Navy because these ships have been captured and it's not really done to rename ships completely. So the Royal Navy ends up with a ship called the Little Belt, which is actually just a renamed Danish ship, which was called the Lille Belt. Uh, Each of these ships have their own individuality and a sort of personal legend to them that I find compelling. And I think the way that the contemporaries speak about these ships kind of sums it up. It's incomprehensible, but it's fantastic. Uh, For example, quote, This fine three-decker rides easy to her anchors, carries her lee ports well, generally carries her helm half a turn a weather, is a weatherly ship and lies too very close. She is allowed by all hands to be faultless. End quote. Or, quote, Notwithstanding her immense size, she worked and sailed like a frigate. End quote. And that sounds a bit backhanded to me, but that's definitely a compliment, apparently. Whatever it means. And then, uh, devastatingly, of the London, uh, Quote, does not stand under her canvas particularly well, end quote, which I think we can we can assume that with British understatement, particularly of that time, that's a pretty brutal insult. And to me, they, they, it sounds kind of like football commentators using those ineffable phrases we hear them use of, you know, he brings great energy to the game or whatever. And I, I recount these to give you a sense of the kind of poetry in this not necessarily for us, we don't need to get all misty-eyed about it, but certainly the people of the time, that there's a degree of kind of synergy between man and ship and the character of that, the resulting aliveness that we we have given to these ships. They're a little like floating towns in their own way. They've got their own hierarchies in which everyone has their own job, their own place. Just to very quickly run through the the, the ship's jobs as far as I understand them. Firstly, you've got officers. You've got the captain who's in charge. Uh, You've got the master who is in charge of of sailing the actual ship. You've got the lieutenants, who are the kind of underlings of the captain. You've got the marine officers, who are in charge of the marines, who are the soldiers on board the ship. You've got the bosun, who is in charge of equipment. You've got the coxswain, who is in charge of the crew. You've got the purser, who is in charge of supplies. You've got the ship's doctor, the gunner. You've got the midshipmen, who are a mixture of very young gentlemen, like Nelson was when he joined the Navy at the age of 12, who are gonna rise up to become lieutenants and commanders and whatever but who also are comprised of very capable sailors often, who have been promoted really to keep the ship going, to, to get the nuts and bolts of business done. And then after that, you've got, you've got the marines, who I said, who are kind of the soldier, well, they, they, they almost act like police on board the boat. They are representatives of, of the crown. They're professional soldiers. They're good at shooting people as well, which is probably useful. You've got specialists like the carpenter, the cook, the tailor, and then seamen themselves are divided. So the, the actual crew, which makes up the vast majority of the ship, are divided into landsmen, ordinary seamen, or able seamen. Landsmen being just, he was a farmer last week and now he's on a ship and he's just some muscles basically to heave on a rope. You are ordinary seamen who are getting an idea of what they're doing and you've got able seamen who are scuttling up the rigging and doing all of those jobs. Now, as well as all of these people, they carried everything with them to keep this crew alive. They've got water in these... Butts that were stacked from the bottom of the ship that would purpose built to fit the curve of the hull. Food, medicine, ammunition, weaponry, pigs, chickens, everything else you would need to keep a boat going. Rope, tar, spare masts, sailcloth, timber, paint. And actually, despite all of that stuff jammed into the ships, they're so buoyant that the Victory, for example, still had 180 tons of iron ballast in the bottom of the ship to keep it from tipping over. Now, we begin to see in these ships a kind of A fascinating dichotomy, the kind of pomp of the Age of Sail versus practicality, a much more modern practicality. John Scott, who was Nelson's secretary, when he's talking about Nelson having to transfer from the Victory to a smaller frigate, he says, his lordship, Nelson, left his steward with all his stock, etc. A few trunks of linen accepted on board that ship. He means the victory. So that until we get her, we shall not be able to commence regular housekeeping, end quote. And that just gives you an idea of the, 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 the sort of standards of living that the officers were keeping on these ships. He was expecting to, to, to commence regular housekeeping. He hasn't got all his linen with him. Dr. Gillespie, who was the doctor on the victory, describes breakfast. He says, quote, Breakfast is announced in the Admiral's cabin, where Lord Nelson, Rear Admiral Murray, the captain of the fleet, Captain Hardy, commander of the victory, the chaplain, secretary, one or two of the officers of the ship, and your humble servant, assemble and breakfast on tea, hot rolls, toast, cold tongue, etc., end quote as if he couldn't quite be bothered, you know, with etc., as if he couldn't quite be bothered to finish the list. Um, then he describes dinner, quote, generally consists of three courses and a dessert of the choicest fruit together with three or four of the best wines, champagne, claret, end quote. And he goes on, when I first read the, the Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien, which is a long series of books, he spends so much time talking about food and all of the stuff they're eating. It sounds like far more than anyone could possibly eat. And apparently is accurate. To further this, you know, this weird sense of the the propriety, the kind of high culture that's going on on these ships. Nelson is on blockade and he keeps up a, a polite correspondence with this Admiral Mazarredo, the commander in the enemy harbour. And as historian Andrew Lambert reports, quote, he, Nelson, even opened a polite correspondence with the Spanish admiral, warning him of a royal salute to be fired on the king's birthday, fearing it might alarm the ladies. Mazzarado's reply was both dignified and charming, So firstly, I mean, the idea of a saluting with the cannons on the king's birthday is, is ceremonial at the very least. But moreover, the image of these gentlemen writing letters to one another who are at war with each other, worried about the ladies nerves. And also that this war seems to be happening entwined with society, with a with a kind of polite society. You know, I get the image of a ball going on and being interrupted by these cannons going off. And in contrast to this pomp, this kind of ceremony that surrounds it all, in fact, which which is crystallised, if you look at the back of these ships, they are beautifully carved and inlaid and painted and everything. And, and in fact, down to the figurehead and the name and so forth, which to me speaks of ceremony. Not a practical measure, but a sort of a ceremonial one. In contrast to this, is the the machine-like workings of this huge weapon. Firstly, to, I mean, to make this officer-seaman split, which really, really sums it up, you've got the officers in these beautiful uniforms. They often bought them themselves. They were kind of reflections of their status. They were highly codified to rank. You know, so a commander, for example, could wear one tasseled epaulette on his shoulder. A captain could wear... Two, an admiral could wear so much gold braid on his cuffs and so forth. On the other hand, the seamen wore whatever they wanted. There was no uniform for sailors. They were shirtless. They, you know, depending on the climate, they were almost always shoeless for better grip on ropes and so forth. Their name, their nickname, Jack Tar, originates from the tar, which was used to waterproof parts of the ship that they coated their clothes in to make them water resistant, waterproof. And if you've ever done, you know, heavy labor, you'll know that, you know, you specialize your clothing to make it work to make your job easier. And I think this reflects ultimately that these sailors aren't being seen as as uniformed individuals, as as people. They are being viewed as part of a machine. They are not made for show. They are made for the efficient prosecution of a war to make this machine work better. And the ship itself continues this this dichotomy. On the one hand, the captain keeps residence in what is called the Great Cabin. And if you've ever seen a sailing ship of this, this era, that's that glass covered bit at the back, which Looks kind of like a Baroque cathedral or something. And the fixings are all decorated, incredible workmanship. And on the other hand, the rest of the ship is stripped bare. Every ounce of fat, everything that you could do to make it quicker, to make it more efficient. Every space has multiple uses. Gun decks, for example, which are just open decks that run the length of most of the ship are where the crew sleep, they eat. With over 800 crew on the victory, for example, they sleep literally in hammocks slung over the cannons that they will use in battle. So these things are mathematically calculated to give each man 24 inches to hang his hammock, for example. The hammocks themselves during battle are bundled up into nets that run the length of the ship to offer some protection against flying missiles and shrapnel and so forth, kind of like sandbags. There's the Orlop deck, which is that really dingy one underneath the waterline underneath the lowest gun deck and it sounds awful it's kind of a half deck so it's it's very very low clearance and this often doubled as the ship's infirmary where the surgeon would operate during battle and the, this this efficiency makes sense to us we would expect military technology to to work like this but the, the the kind of lavishness the the luxury and so forth is a little more difficult to put your finger on firstly i think it's important to recognize that these are prestige items that these are like Well, these were often where you could host a diplomatic event. You could sign a treaty there. You could, the the Admiral had enough rooms on there to properly host a dinner party if he needed to whilst he was in port. They showed off the nation's wealth and power. More importantly, I think, and and interestingly, we need to remember that almost the entire officer class of these ships was from the gentry, and the gentry expected access to a degree of society. And as I mentioned, Nelson was, was there for two years, blockading too long. And he still needed to be a, a gentleman, you know. That was his role in society. And this sense of pomp, this sense of ceremony surrounding everything, I think, supplied officers with an access or a, a sort of sham access to that society. They could still pretend that they were that they were gentlemen and that they were living the lives of gentlemen. Actually, on modern ships, these things are largely done away with. You don't have these these huge captains' quarters and so forth anymore. Anyway, back to back to the chase. We left these two fleets uh, slowly crawling across the Atlantic, Nelson in pursuit of Villeneuve. Villeneuve arrives at Martinique in mid-May and he has an exciting episode uh, capturing somewhere called Diamond Rock. This is a complete sidebar but it's quite filmic and and interesting. Diamond Rock is this lump of, of rock just outside the port of Martinique. Look up a, a picture of it. It's, it's pretty striking. It's literally just a big lump of a kind of finger of rock that stabs out of the ocean. And the British captured it a year or so before this. And obviously that's a real pain in the ass for any French shipping. And there's an officer and about 100 men holding it. And they've winched up these guns and they are making a real nuisance of themselves. They fortified themselves in there. And Villeneuve, whilst he's there, thinks, well, I might as well do something about this. He bombards it. He lands men to try to take it. He does all sorts of things. There's this long standoff. And finally, um, an earthquake unexpectedly cracks the water cistern in the rock. And the water all runs away. And there are issues with supplies. And the British have to surrender. And I'm really surprised this, that, that hasn't been a film. You know, I can imagine it with Michael Caine or somebody. Anyway, Nelson arrives in in Barbados on the 4th of June. He takes a look about the Caribbean, which is a real spray of islands if you just look on the map. And they're all held by English, Dutch, Spanish, French, Portuguese. And Nelson has to decide which way to go. Again, he doesn't know where Villeneuve is. He's got conflicting reports, Jamaica, Trinidad. He chooses to go to Trinidad, and he finds nothing. Villeneuve has actually just been waiting in Martinique. Remember his orders. The plan for him is that he's to meet up with Missisi and Genton, Genton who never left Brest, and Mississi, who has long sailed for Rochefort. He's supposed to wait for forty days. He hears that Nelson is in the Caribbean, and he sets sail. Definitely before those forty days are up, he wants to get out of there. I can't help but feel that Villeneuve was having a really horrible time of it in the Caribbean. He, as far as he was concerned, his was, plan was to meet up with the other admirals and to storm straight back across the Atlantic. But at this point, he he receives some more orders from Napoleon who's constantly shooting off letters to him basically saying oh I'm sending some guys and they're going to help you carry on capturing all of those islands and as far as he was concerned that had never been even the plan in the first place but Napoleon really wasn't the kind of boss that he could bring that up with Uh, so instead he thought he would better try and start making a bit of a a nuisance of himself he briefly uh, tries to attack Antigua it doesn't go particularly well. He manages to capture a, a convoy of British merchant ships with sugar and rum and all sorts of stuff. Um, however, the sloop that was escorting them, as it's fleeing, sends off some signals, as if it's signalling to friendly ships just over the horizon. And Villeneuve, who is plagued by this idea that Nelson is right on his tail, immediately burns the ships that he's captured and just takes off. And we could quite uh, sort of cruelly characterise Villeneuve as a coward or just a bit of a ditherer or the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. But we have to remember also that he had, he had been at the Nile the last time he saw Nelson and he could see, he see he saw what he had done. He saw that he was capable of completely demolishing the French fleet. He saw his admiral's flagship explode hundreds of men dying simultaneously. And it's easy, again, as I've said before, with the oil paintings of billowing canvas and heroic looking men, to think of this age as something other than the war that we're used to seeing depicted by the trench poets or or indeed by the modern media of post-traumatic stress and all of those sorts of things. But I think we can quite fairly give Villeneuve a bit of slack here he has been damaged and is and is afraid of what's going to happen to him and to his fleet um, but in any case he, he sets off back for France and Nelson pursues he notes to himself quote, saw three planks which I think came from the British fleet, very miserable which is foolish End quote. and I think there's something charmingly childish about this that he is sulking over the fact that he's not going to get a battle, he has to guess where Villeneuve is going again and again I want to bring you back to this this thought that he does not no, and if he gets it wrong he is potentially going to be court-martialed and killed. The Mediterranean, Spain, the Channel, he could be going to any of them. And he's sending off these letters, he's asking for advice from the Admiralty, he's giving updates which as far as he's aware may not get to the Admiralty until after he has had a battle. In any case Nelson puts on every sail he's got and he decides he's going to sail for Gibraltar. He arrives there on the 20th of July At this point, he's been chasing Villeneuve or on blockade or in some way seeking out a confrontation with with him for, for two years, nearly all of that time at sea. And I want to dip into his personal motivations for a minute because it's worthwhile, I think, to take a step back and think about motivations in general, both Nelson's personal motivations, but also the motivations for some of the other thousands of individuals involved in this. So to consider Nelson personally first, I think it's, it's really easy to see him as a paragon of duty, just doggedly pursuing his quarry for the good of his country. But we can, do, we can do better than that for sure. In 1805, Nelson was 46, which by modern standards is fairly young, you'd think, just reaching the fullness of his career. However, you've got to bear in mind that Nelson had joined the navy, had started his career at the age of 12. So he's been there for 35 years and he's been in action at this point 120 times. He was blind in one eye, he was losing his sight in the other eye, he'd lost an arm, he had pain from his stomach, he had head wounds, he suffered from a hernia, he had intermittent headaches, he had insomnia, fever, depression, and it would be easy to characterize him as I, you know, perhaps did a little in the first episode as a bit of a hypochondriac, but we have to remember that he has been through a brutal three and a half decades and his body has suffered for it. Furthermore, We can't psychoanalyse, but I can't imagine that anybody's mental state would be in a great condition after 120 violent engagements. The nature of which, as we'll see in the next episode, was a far cry from the serene depictions of it that we see on canvas. So why was he here, rather than in comfortable retirement? Firstly, and it's very hard to extricate this from any sense of patriotic duty, is Nelson's desperation for public recognition. I think those are maybe part of the same thing, really. In this respect, I think Nelson bears a really striking resemblance to a Roman general, a guy called Pompey the Great. For those of you who aren't really into classical literature, that may make things murkier rather than clearer, but to explain, Pompey the Great was a, a close contemporary of Julius Caesar. He was comparably su- successful as a military leader, in fact, as evidenced by this, the drawn-out civil war that Caesar and Pompey had. But where Caesar was also a really highly successful politician and a very driven individual, he was very quick to capitalize on his victories. Pompey seemed genuinely just to want recognition. He was fighting to win battles, which he did very regularly and pretty spectacularly, not for any ulterior motive, but genuinely just for the glory of winning them. And when he won them and he came home, he seemed genuinely despondent about the fact that he wasn't being given great triumphs and great celebrations. And of course, he didn't understand basically that he couldn't receive those triumphs because the Senate couldn't celebrate him too much or he would become too powerful. The Senate couldn't give him public recognition in fear of a dictator. And Nelson seems to have had a similar relationship back with the British government. I mean, Nelson was never going to become a dictator, but this feeling of of not really receiving the recognition and not understanding that the British government, you know, maybe couldn't always recognise him for the things that he was doing. He mentions in a letter home, quote, I still find it good to serve near home. They're a man's fag, which means work, and services are easily seen, end quote. And all of those efforts from the Nelson PR machine that I mentioned in the first episode to pump up his profile were, as it happens, the means to his promotion, but I think we can also see them as an end in themselves. Nelson just seems to have adored being praised for his efforts, particularly for the public approval that he received and the legacy of his memory after death. Before the Battle of Trafalgar, he wrote to his prize agent and his friend, Alexander Davison, quote, Let the battle be when it may. It will never have been surpassed. My shattered frame, if I survive that day, will require rest, and that is all I shall ask for. If I fall on such a glorious occasion, it shall be my pride to take care that my friends shall not blush for me. End quote. Now, not to try and deeply psychoanalyse that, but he ends with, shalt- he doesn't want his friends to blush for him. You know, he doesn't say he wants his friends to be proud of him. He doesn't want people to be ashamed of him, which for me, you know, we could see this angle of him, this Pompey-esque need for affirmation as a rather kind of megalomaniacal, I think I've got that right, uh, sort of self, self-involved, self conceited sort of uh, reflex. But I think it's this, my friends shall not blush for me, that for me is so deeply human. He's not self-aggrandizing he is so tied up with the idea that people are going to be ashamed of him. Now, secondly, other than this, this need for approval, there is the more cynical matter of money. Nelson had really not been a particularly financially successful admiral. Captains really operated like subcontractors, essentially, on their ships. They had a salary, but they would also, they, they would usually be, be landed gentlemen of some form or other with uh, their own private incomes, and by capturing enemy ships, they would stand to make huge amounts of money. We discussed that the cost of a ship like the Victory was enormous. And if a ship like that was taken, it was essentially sold by the captains of the capturing ship back to the British government. And this money was then distributed, uh, three-eighths for the captain, one-eighth for senior officers and so forth. It was horribly unfair. Um, A quarter of it was given to the remaining vast majority of the crew. And the fleet admirals actually then took a cut of everything taken across their whole fleet. So there was a lot of money to be made, if you were lucky. Sir Hyde Parker, for example, is said to have made £200,000 in 18th century money during his command of the West Indies. However, there were expenses as well, as I said, just like a subcontractor. Senior officers, particularly admirals, they were expected to keep ship, to entertain, to keep up that sense of pomp and circumstance that I talked about just earlier, on a level appropriate to their rank. So, you know, as we saw from the earlier description, that was extravagant. Those meals... If you're entertaining 15 officers every night, that's gonna mount up. Moreover, as much as the expenses of the ship were nominally expenses of the Navy, the captain was actually free to spend his own money to improve it as he saw fit. That could be on paint, it could be on outfits for his, you know, the, the people who would row his little barge. But a prime example of this is the powder allotment, that the ordnance board was, basically gave a small ration of powder to each ship to be used to practise firing its guns. And many, many captains just saw that as not enough, and they spent large amounts of their own money to supply further powder for more practice. And you can see how that quickly becomes a kind of cost-benefit analysis on how much money you're willing to put into something with a very real effect on your likelihood of success, like the speed at which you can fire your guns. So this kind of subcontractor status basically means that they have a lot of skin in the game as compared to modern soldiers or sailors, that victory or defeat are not just a matter of professional account, but have the power to make or to ruin fortunes. In 1801, when he bought his first home, Nelson struggled to get together the £9,000 for it. That's not very much I mean, it's a, it's a good amount of money in that time. It's a good amount of money now, but it's not a huge amount of money for a gentleman to be buying his first house with, and he struggled. He had been rewarded with um, estates in Bronte in southern Italy by uh, King Ferdinand of Naples, but he'd actually he'd used a lot of that money from this to help finance the siege of Malta. Again, that kind of subcontractor status. Historian uh, Nicholas Best sums up Nelson's situation in 1805 as follows. his mistress had extravagant tastes and he had a wife to support as well. The only way he could do so was by taking the admiral's share of any prize money awarded to the fleet. The war was a commercial proposition for Nelson as well as a patriotic duty, end quote. And Nelson, I think, sums up these two driving motivations. In a letter to his friend uh, George Rose just before Trafalgar. He says, quote, I verily believe the country will soon be put to some expense for my account, either a monument or a new pension and honours, end quote. It's either going to be a lot of money or it's going to be a glorious memory. Now if those are Nelson's personal motivations then why is everyone else there? And obviously we can't judge that for individuals but there are thousands and thousands of people on these ships and in these fleets that I think we can consider some of the overall incentives as to what's brought them there. In order to do that, we can, I think, think about the the social structure of these ships. These ships functioned really like self-contained communities, maybe more accurately, like like self-contained psychological experiments, little ecosystems that had to be totally self-sustaining logistically and socially. And they had incredibly diverse crews and... Um, skill sets on board them. As I said, there's several hundred people on each of these ships and they're not just sailors. In fact, very, very few of them would have just been sailors from the start of their, of their working lives. So on a logistical level, this means that, you know, sometimes you might need something forged from metal and one of the crew from these diverse backgrounds would say, oh, I used to be a blacksmith. Or you'd need a sail altered and a textile worker might step up. And sometimes those needs couldn't be met. For example, the difference in quality between ship surgeons was said to be huge. Some ships would have real doctors, some would have like a butcher who had learnt to hack off limbs and stitch them up. And these ships would loan one another crewmen, help each other out where they could. So, for this reason, I think the, the, the each of these ships, as well as being physically unique and being being built before standard manufacturing and, and so forth, would also really have its own character in terms of the social body of its crew. I think the social level of this ecosystem is is more interesting than the logistical one. The first thing to address in this ecosystem is the captain. The captain isn't isn't really a rank in the Navy in 1805. It's just a cipher, really, for whoever is in charge of the ship. You either have a master and commander who is uh, somebody in charge of a sloop or a brig. If you're going to be in anything bigger than a sloop or a brig, you need to become a post-captain, and they would be in charge of a ship of the line or a frigate. Now, whatever his rank, this captain is essentially God, on this ship and he has to be because the amount of discretion he has to use being away from the rest of the chain of command of you know government and the the admiralty and so forth he's essentially the representative of the king and the government and in some ways the church he has legal power over his little kingdom he can give the death sentence he can give sermons he can conduct burials if there isn't a chaplain on board and actually many captains didn't like there being chaplains on board because it to some extent undermined his authority there was a higher power on board and what this means is this almost set of religious rules surrounded captains of ships. The captains didn't even give orders directly to the crew. Their first lieutenant would or their master would. His person is absolutely inviolate. Any, any crime against his body was, is, is treason on a ship. He dines separately from the rest of his officers unless he invites them to dine. The quarterdeck, which is the sort of raised section at the back of the ship from which you can see the rest of it is holy ground that only officers and certain ratings of of people who have permission to be there can tread on it. And even this, when you're on the quarterdeck, is governed by rules. It's it's broken down. The starboard side of the quarterdeck, the right-hand side, is reserved for the pacing of the captain if he is present. And if he's not present, then the first lieutenant gets that prerogative. And on an immediate level, of course, that sounds sort of ridiculous and more than a little bit petty and childish. Um, The idea of Nelson saying, that's my place to be strolling up and down. But it does bear a little bit of closer analysis. These rules are there for a reason and as silly as they might look they're there to keep something holy that is is really really important. That's the establishment of precedent that will not be broken. You might have heard of the broken window effect and that's essentially the idea that if a neighborhood gets one broken window You need to fix that window straight away or else the whole neighborhood will begin to slide. And that's because people in that neighborhood will begin to see it as a neighborhood that has broken windows. And therefore the broken window quite quickly becomes just the norm and people start to think, well, it's also the kind of neighborhood where we don't mow our lawns. It's the kind of neighbourhood where we knock down fire hydrants and have the water shooting out everywhere. It's the kind of neighbourhood where we don't paint our house. It's the kind of neighbourhood where we let the gutters get clogged up and flooding is normal. It's the kind of neighbourhood where we let our houses burn down and the whole city's gone before you know it. And that concept actually has has been applied before to soldiers in Vietnam. It was said of soldiers in Vietnam that, you know, are you one of those regiments that doesn't shave your beards? And that something as small as not shaving your beard, which to us, outsiders, seems kind of silly to bother about when you're in as serious a situation as the Vietnam War. But if you don't shave your beard, which is part of military discipline, very quickly, not shaving your beard becomes normal. And therefore, quite quickly, you think, well, what's the next transgression that we do that's normal? We don't shine our boots. Okay, that's also petty. We don't make our beds. Well, all right. We don't treat prisoners properly we don't maintain proper fire discipline and we can apply that then as well back you know back to the early 19th century as soon as you let something as tiny slip as okay the bo'sun is going to be pacing on the starboard side of the quarterdeck whilst the captain is present then very quickly you become the ship where actually you're allowed to you're allowed to touch the captain on the shoulder if he says something to you and then after that you become the ship where you're allowed to actually discuss with the captain whether or not you think his orders are a good idea and so the maintenance of these seemingly ridiculous rules and we hate them especially you know when we're kids they're arbitrary but they're arbitrary for a reason that you have to have arbitrary rules in place to sort of safeguard I suppose to be a buffer against the real rules that really matter getting slipped on and this could really be anything that's the great thing about it it could be Uh, that you've got to wiggle your hands in the air every time you see the captain. And in fact, if we think about a salute, that's that's essentially what it is. It's just an abstract idea of a thing you do to show I'm still obeying the rules, just so you know. Because then as soon as somebody doesn't do that really arbitrary thing, you can straight away, before they infringe on something that actually matters, you can pick them out and say, ah, we're going to have a problem, aren't we, soon? And essentially what that does is maintain the status quo of the things that you really care about. Now, on a ship crewed by as many as a 1,000 individuals, a status quo has to be found, and it has to be maintained. And the incentives, the carrots and sticks, that are used in the way to to keep everyone pulling in the same direction can be examined. Discipline is the most obvious facet of maintaining this status quo. It varied a lot between ships. Many of them were dubbed floating hells. If they had a, a particularly bloodthirsty captain or bosun, But these being given a nickname in and of themselves, that suggests that the the, the norm was a level of violence that was accepted, that that was not a floating hell. And there's obviously a great degree of cultural relativity in our attitude towards violence and and lots of things that they did. You know, we we would consider them monstrous today. Punishments included starting, which is just a kind of informal beating. It's just a whack around the head with a stick. Flogging, uh, which would be lashes on the back carried out in front of the whole crew in a sort of formal ceremony gagging for insubordinate speech, uh, being starved to death for falling asleep on watch if you do it enough times. The cook could be cobbed or furked, which uh, would be if he let food spoil, that would be beating him with, with socks filled with sand. There's a famous idea of keel hauling. This was actually outlawed by 1805, but that would be dragging an offender down the length of the ship's underside. These punishments kind of take on quite an interesting social dimension when we see that it isn't even the officers who are punishing the men, usually. The startings, the floggings, would be carried out by the bosun or the bosun's mate. And we see this dynamic time and again in any power structure. The bosun and his mate really belong, I mean... There's some complicated dynamics going on, but they belong more to the crew than they do to the officer class. But by giving them power and privilege, the crew are essentially made to keep themselves in line. Because the boatswain has some small sort of privileges, he's got his own tiny little cabin and so forth, but he, he, because he's got a stake now suddenly in the maintenance of the status quo, he's terrified of the idea of the crew getting uppity and getting in front ahead of themselves. And secondly, actually, some punishments were carried out by the crew at large. There was a the practice of running the gauntlet, that was for stealing from your crewmates. And that involved running between parallel lines of them as they beat you with whatever came to hand. The social purpose of that is, is pretty straightforward, isn't it? A crime such as stealing has been committed directly against the crew, and therefore the crew will carry it out against against one of their own. In this way we can see the, the maintenance of discipline and on a more basic level, the maintenance of social norms, like, like not stealing, was kind of in everybody's interests. The most fundamental level this social contract functions on is of survival. If a watchman falls asleep when the enemy appears, then that's obviously going to be disastrous. But even if a knot comes undone in a storm, then everyone pays for it with their lives. And that goes down and down and down, even to insubordinate words against the captain. That if you don't have proper discipline in, in action, then everyone's lives could be at risk. So it's a kind of maintenance of a status quo that keeps everyone safe one of the punishment that that segues us very conveniently into the positive incentives that kept all these people here was withholding the rum ration since the 17th century right up until 1970 amazingly sailors were given a tot of rum a day and i'm sure this varied but that's about an eighth of a pint and this is navy rum which is between 50 and 60 percent alcohol by volume and they were given beer as well so it's a significant amount of alcohol and withholding this or granting extra rations was a really serious business and I think it tells you quite a lot of, about life on board a ship or the reasons that people might be there that you needed this much alcohol to make it livable. Uh, an obvious positive incentive was money. This was a steady job. In a world before welfare states, this job allowed a lot of men to sustain themselves and their families. There was also the, the possibility, as I mentioned, of large windfalls of prize money. When an enemy ship was captured, it gets sold back to the British government, and it all gets shared out very unequally, as I said. Now, despite being unequal this this could still mean more than these men have ever had in their lives and a lot would aspire to get lucky on prize money and they would retire to a farm or a trade and and they would be sorted and that would be their intention but i think this money has a has a darker side as well as the alcohol actually i think they're linked the men were paid all at once when they reached shore they weren't paid as they went they weren't as would be I think a far more sensible idea paid in you know in trust so that when they get back to england they've got some money. Instead, they were paid whenever they reached port. As soon as they enter a friendly port, they get paid off, so long as there's money in that port to pay them off with. And what that means, obviously, really predictably, is that most of these men who have been at sea eating hard tack and weevils and dirty water for months on end go wild. They've got a bag full of money. They go drinking. They visit prostitutes. They gamble it away as soon as they reach port. They blow all of their earnings. And in doing so, they deepen their alcohol dependency. And I can't help but think this may well have been calculated because once they've run out of money, they wake up with their hangover, who are they going to go to? You know, that, th- this this was a really vulnerable moment, actually, for ship's crews that they might just leave. You know, they've gone to port and they might think, I really don't want to go back to sea. It's pretty awful. But you can count on most of them coming back because who are they going to go to when they need their next tot of rum? They know that as soon as they can get back to ship, they are they are getting it. So, anyway, that's a kind of chemical dependency to motivate your, your crew. Now, the more elusive and unquantifiable incentives that I think are definitely the most interesting firstly, there's prestige, you know, the idea of the jack tar as a different species is one that was very predominant at the time but I think if we examine our own way of thinking about about sailors that we think of them as a kind of another people and for our modern sensibilities I think this comes probably from an idea that they they don't sort of belong to the state they don't live on the land they aren't tied down they can rove across the ocean and they sing lots of beautiful sea shanties but for people at the time I think it would be far deeper sense that these people can tell you about animals they saw in Africa. They saw far more of the world than 99% of the people that then they would see when they got back to the country. So you can see how the, the, Jack, the jolly Jack Tar becomes a really glamorous figure to be. So they're seen as very special, almost transcendent, above normal humans. And this is even codified, if you think about it, in the ratings of the seamen. As I said, you get landsmen, when they first come to the, to the ship and they're probably still in their farming smock and then they get rated up to ordinary seamen as, as if to say, you are now a member of this body. And then after that, you get rated up to able seamen almost to suggest that there is something sort of transcendent. You've have, you have become something greater than you were. And there was also by this time a, a real understanding of, of the concept of England's wooden wall, that England's defense was its navy, not its army. And that to be a part of that was a, a noble existence. And I think actually stronger than that and less romantic, there was a virtuosity to it. There was a a virtuosic pride. It wasn't necessarily a moralistic defense of the country, but more the prestige of belonging to the team who is absolutely the best at something, which, as we will see, the Royal Navy really was at the time. And this plays into the most elusive incentive at all, and that's the experience of it, of sailing one of these ships. Recently, I tried to watch uh, Master and Commander when I started this series with my girlfriend, and, um, well, she, she couldn't stand it. Um, But she did say, I can imagine it must have felt amazing. And that kind of struck me. Psychologically, being a part of a collective effort feels good. We know that. And being part of a 1,000-person team, and I think we need to contextualise that because it's easy to say 1,000 people, it's quite difficult to imagine that. I went to a pretty ordinary-sized British secondary comprehensive school and that had about 1,500 people, I think, but not that many more. So that's like, you know, two-thirds of that school all being on not a very big ship, all doing the same thing. And you can bet I didn't know even a quarter of those people's names. But because of your, your joint effort and your joint situation, you are all pulling in the same direction. And solely by the sweat of your own brow and the expertise and the teamwork, you are making a ship that weighs several thousand tons go where you want it to go just through wind power that must be an incredible, you know, serotonin high. And if that's the carrot, then as I've mentioned, the the stick for that is that if this community doesn't all pull in the same direction at the same time, then the first decent storm will send them all to watery graves. In any case, that's a bit of an analysis of the society of these ships. So back to the chase. As we said, Nelson is making for for Gibraltar, assuming that that's where, where Villeneuve is heading as they go back across the Caribbean. On the 8th of July, however, a couple of weeks Before this, the Admiralty in London have gotten information that Villeneuve is probably aiming for the channel. And they scramble together some of the squadrons that they've got in the area, Cornwallis, Collingwood, Calder. They're all blockading people. They're in port. And Calder manages to get in the way of Villeneuve, just off Finisterre, which is on the northwest tip of Spain. He's got 15 ships of the line. He's facing off against Villeneuve, who has 20. And at this point, it looks like the whole campaign, which, needless to mention, is not called the Trafalgar campaign. It's the make sure England doesn't get invaded campaign at this point, could could be resolved. However, due to fog, the wavering of the admirals, indecisiveness, the engagement happens, but not much comes of it. And if nothing else, this gives a real sense of destiny to this big engagement that is coming at Trafalgar. Obviously, in retrospect... But it all seems to be leading up to this. It almost seems as if nothing can resolve this except for a big, huge clash, unprecedented in size. Now, despite the indecisiveness of this fight off Finisterre, it is a strategic victory for the British. They've kept the French out of the channel. Villeneuve is surrounded by these British squadrons, and he seems to have a kind of victim mentality. He has a, he has a larger force than any of the squadrons around him, including Nelson's, which is chasing him. But he's waiting to be attacked. He's waiting to be beaten. But despite Villeneuve's sort of hangdog attitude about this whole thing, it really is important to remember that this was very, very nearly a French victory for this whole campaign. Despite everything that had already gone wrong, Jean not turning up in the Caribbean, Mississippi already having sailed, really, if Villeneuve had beaten Calder's 15 ships with his 20, which sounds pretty achievable, he probably would have gone on and liberated the French fleet at Brest, gathered up a larger force, occupied the Channel, and, and there we go. The British were not in a really confident position at this point it really easily could have gone wrong even after the battle Villeneuve was unsure what he was going to do he's trying to link up with more ships he finds a Danish ship which is neutral and he questions the captain and the captain warns him there's 25 British ships coming to get you but this is seat of the pants stuff from the British because there weren't 25 British ships coming to get him nobody was really in the way and capable of stopping him But actually a British frigate that was shadowing the French fleet called the Dragon had had previously also spoken to this Danish uh, merchant and planted them with the idea that there was 25 British ships of the line tearing down on the French. So that, I mean, that's a real Hail Mary, isn't it? And it pays off and Villeneuve gets spooked and he makes for a safe port. He'd like to go to Cadiz, which is kind of the home base of the combined fleet. It's on the very, very southern tip of Spain. But he has to cut and run. He's surrounded and he runs for Ferrol, which is on the northwestern tip of Spain, where he holds up and he hides. And I'm afraid that is the anticlimactic end of this wild goose chase. This is the point at which the movie execs would say, look, can we just pretend that Trafalgar happened then? They've had this wild goose chase halfway around the world and back and they've basically wound up exactly where they started. Now Nelson leaves most of his squadron to blockade Ferrol. He disappointedly returns to London and that's it. No, it's not, it's not it. That's not it at all. He, he, he returns to London, but he does have this strange, there's a weird interlude here. He goes home to Merton. And again, with this filmic progression of things, th- this seems like a, there's a kind of denouement aspect to this, that he's going home to put things right, to get everything in order before he goes off for the great final clash. And we get a sense here of L- Nelson's sort of character and his place in London society, the sort of light he is seen in at home. He's an unlikely hero in many ways. We haven't really spoken about what he looks like other than his, uh, his various mutilations. A visitor to, to Nelson's home said, quote, Lord Nelson was of middle stature, a thin body, and apparently of delicate constitution. The lines of his face were hard, but the penetration of his eye threw a light upon his countenance, end quote. And his neighbour's son calls him, quote, that odd fellow, Lord Nelson. What a funny looking fellow he was. He was dressed in a naval coat, with white naval breeches with naval buttons at the knees, silk stockings invariably hanging on as if not pulled up, too large, and shoes rather high in the quarters, large with buckles. He was kind in the extreme, and we all loved him. End quote. So I think we get a picture of a kind of an unlikely looking fellow that that fills out, I think, actually something of a stereotype that maybe is based on people like him of the unlikely hero, the underdog hero. Maybe that allows us to believe that the British Empire, the most powerful force on Earth, really, at this time, is an underdog. And this is a really good moment, I think, for a comparison with Arthur Wellesley. Uh, He is Arthur Wellesley. At this point, he will become Lord Wellington uh, and eventually he'll become the prime minister. And Wellington, 10 years later, will beat Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. In many ways, he has a, a similar historical circumstance. He's a decorated war hero. He is seen as the really the, the hope of Britain, but on land rather than at sea. He has a long celebrated career. He pulls off a big famous named battle, Waterloo. And Waterloo is arguably a more significant event. Its significance is certainly easier to measure because it's the last battle of the Napoleonic Wars. It kind of ends the era. Yet I would say, that Wellington is a, a much less beloved character in our national mythology certainly a, a less well-known one Wellesley speaking about Nelson kind of gives us some insight I think into his character and into maybe the reason why we don't see him in such fond light he says well he sorry he recalls a time when he met him quote a gentleman whom from his likeness to his pictures and the loss of an arm I immediately recognized as Lord Nelson he could not know who I was but he entered at once into conversation with me if I can call it conversation, for it was almost all on his side and all about himself, and in reality a style so vain and so silly as to surprise and almost disgust me, I suppose that something I happened to say may have made him guess that I was somebody, and he went out of the room for a moment. I have no doubt to ask an officer who I was, for when he came back, he was altogether a different man, both in manner and matter, End quote. and I can't help but get the impression that Wellesley dislikes Nelson simply for not knowing who he is, and i well. I think listening to that quote you can hear that he speaks about other people in a way that Nelson simply doesn't. Maybe we don't remember Wellington because he was a bit of an arsehole, much less flippantly. Another really big difference is their attitude to politics and their eventual relationship with it. Wellington ends up being Prime Minister twice and then deeply involved with the inner workings of British government for a long time. And I'm not going to go into his political career, but I think inevitably, really we don't need to know about his political career to know that we get muddied by getting involved in politics it's harder to mythologize someone who has to make all of the decisions that prime ministers have to make all the time. You really only need to look back at the UK's last four or five prime ministers to realize that nobody comes out of it very well, do they? Or well, certainly not clean. By its very nature, party politics inevitably allies you with one part of the population, kind of half of it, and it alienates the other. Nelson, on the other hand, had no political ambitions. He actually said to Pitt, who was the prime minister at the time, quote, that in matters where my judgment wavered, or to the full extent of which I might feel unequal, I should be as silent as I could. I could not reconcile to my mind the, th- the giving of a vote without full consideration of its propriety." End quote. Essentially, he's saying he doesn't pretend to understand the ins and outs of the workings of the country, so he wouldn't be comfortable expressing an opinion. He is a simple sailor, you know, in, in his own words. And I don't think we should idolize this. I, I think we should really applaud people like Wellington, actually, for being willing to get into the mud and to try and sort things out. But we can see here a good example of maybe admitting to your limitations and sticking to what you're good at is a better way to be remembered well. Perhaps some of you know, our current leadership could take that advice. An American visitor to England said, quote, Lord Nelson cannot appear in the streets without immediately collecting a retinue which augments as he proceeds. And when he enters a shop, the door is thronged till he comes out. When the air rings with huzzas, and the dark cloud of the populace again moves on and hangs upon his skirts, end quote. Lord Mint- Minto, who is an old friend of his says, quote, it is really quite affecting to see the wonder and admiration, the love and respect of the whole world and the genuine expression of all these sentiments at once, gentle and simple, the moment he is seen, end quote. In the past, Nelson has actually already been on a tour of the country with Emma Hamilton, who, as I've said before, sort of MCs for him. He tours Yorkshire and, and the counties and, and speaks to the people of the country. And and, and I think we can begin to see that that's really the approval that he seeks. And he is absolutely adored. He, he gives speeches and he, he kind of does almost like a variety show around the country. So he's really adored by the populace and he is seen as the chosen one. And personally for Nelson, I think there appears to be a bit of a darker side to this hero that he's been set up to be. Uh, he says... Uh, to, to a friend quote I am now set up for a conjurer God knows they will very soon find out that I am far from being one I was asked my opinion against my inclination for if I make one wrong guess the charm will be broken end quote and to go back I suppose to that idea of the national hero being sort of hostage to those who who worship him we can see again this sense that he's just terrified he's going to let everybody down. And that that perhaps is one of the reasons why he seems to constantly be praying for this glorious death. However, despite uh, Nelson's misgivings, I suppose, about being made into this chosen one, he is needed. And it's anticipated really at this point that Villeneuve, to go back to military matters, will gather up the various elements of the French and the Spanish fleets. The French complex manoeuvres have failed and that a show of brute strength seems inevitable. He's just gonna get together as many French and Spanish ships as he can and bull straight towards the channel. And the only way to stop it will be a big British fleet. On the 2nd of September, news comes that the combined fleet has left Ferrol and Karuna, and it has entered Cadiz. And Nelson is summoned to the Admiralty in a scene that in my head is straight out of an Avengers movie, we need you kind of moment, only you will do. And he's asked to choose his captains. And he replies, quote, Choose yourself, my lord. The same spirit actuates the whole profession, meaning the Navy. You cannot choose wrong." End quote. And again, we, we get a sense of why people love this guy. Compare that back to how Wellesley spoke about about Nelson. He seems to see and, and therefore get the best out of everybody. And he leaves Portsmouth. And several accounts of this time are steeped in a feeling, very obviously attributed after the fact, but of this departure Having a, a sense of destiny about it. Minto remarks, quote, Lady Hamilton was in tears all yesterday, could not eat and hardly drink, and near swooning. End quote. The same American who had seen him in London says, quote, By the time he had arrived on the beach, some hundreds of people had collected in his train, pressing all around him and pushing to get a little before him to obtain a sight of his face. End quote. Nelson himself writes, quote, May the great God whom I adore enable me to fulfill the expectations of my country. And if it is his good pleasure that I shall return, my thanks will never cease being offered up to the throne of his mercy. If it is his good providence to cut short my days upon earth, I bow with the greatest submission, relying that he will protect those dear to me and that I may leave behind, end quote. There's a real sense of this having been written for posterity, and we've seen that many times before, and it has such a clear feeling of what is going to happen, and it gives this this sense of pregnant expectation both from Nelson but also from the country and there's definitely a parallel here of the kind of messianic imagery we saw you know from from that American visitor of the crowds at the beach struggling to get to him to catch a, a sight of his face people trying to touch him before he set sail on what seems to be almost foreordained to be a a martyrdom a death in the line of duty And there are two details that for me really crystallize this expectation of a martyrdom. The first and clearest of them is that he has his coffin made up, which in fact was gifted to him. It's made out of the wood of uh, L'Orient, the the flagship at the Nile, the French flagship that exploded, uh, which is a pretty macabre gift to give anybody. Uh, But in any case, he, he gets it made ready. And secondly, more subtly, he sends this letter to his daughter, uh, Horatia Horatia is his daughter with Lady Hamilton, who he's never acknowledged as his own. She actually believes that he's her godfather. And he sends a sweet letter, which I won't read all of, but but that ends with the words, Receive, my dearest Horatia, the affectionate parental blessings of your father, Nelson and Bronte. And that is the first and the only time that he will be able to acknowledge to her that that she's his daughter and to me that speaks clearer than anything really of his expectation of death because it suggests that he's getting done what he can only do sort of from beyond the grave and that he certainly can't live within the polite society that his place in the world insists of him. In any case on September 17th Nelson re-embarks the victory and he sets sail to join the rest of his fleet. And paying testament to the regard that Nelson was held in by by Europe as a whole at the time, he arrives to take command of the squadron. That is blockading Cadiz. He takes command off his good friend Collingwood on the night of the 28th of September. And he instructs Collingwood not to make any signal that a new admiral has arrived. He has to send a boat ahead to say, basically, don't fire the guns, don't salute, don't do any of that, because the French will know it's Nelson, and then they will never come out to fight. And as an aside to this, Napoleon actually was known to have kept a bust of Nelson in the Tuileries Palace. So despite any animosity there's certain, there's there's some respect there. And Nelson takes command and he pulls the blockading ships back over the horizon just like he had done before. He wants Villeneuve to come out and to fight. He wants to give the illusion that there is space for for, for Villeneuve to get out. And Nelson here is in command of 27 ships of the line. Whilst there's There's probably about 40 French and Spanish ships in port in Cadiz. They don't know how many of them are ready for sea, but 40 ships against 27. And this, I mean, if nothing else, that gives you a sense of the confidence of the Royal Navy. They are outnumbered, but they are spoiling for a fight. Villeneuve's orders are to sail for the Mediterranean and to link up with the French and the Spanish ships at Toulon and Cartagena. And then they'll have this overwhelming force. I think altogether that would be in the region of 70 ships of the line or something. And he had been kind of reluctant to sail to be honest. Even though Nelson had drawn back f- f- over the horizon, he didn't want to sail. He was all too aware the British were superior sailors, the likelihood of an engagement which he didn't feel he could win. However, he was also made aware that Admiral Rossilli, who was another French Admiral, was on his way to Cadiz, almost certainly to, to replace him, to send him back to Paris in disgrace and to face the, the tender mercies of the Emperor's disapproval. Napoleon had this kind of habit of replacing admirals when they had displeased him and I think Villeneuve got the sense that he was nearing the end of his limit, the goodwill was running out and very possibly his life was on the line and he still had his orders to set sail and he knew that a victory would restore his name so he saw some British ships leave to resupply at Gibraltar and he thought well they're a little weakened and he took his opportunity and he begins to probe out of Cadiz Harbour and on the dawn of the 19th of October the British frigate Sirius spots the French fleet and it starts a chain of signals, a little bit like the the chain of beacons in, in Lord of the Rings between Rohan and Gondor, via the Urialis and the Phoebe, these frigates just over the horizon from one another, they can just see the top of each other's masts all the way back to Nelson. And Nelson immediately sets sail towards Gibraltar. He's anticipating again Villeneuve's course and all through the 20th, he's desperately scanning the horizon for the enemy. By the afternoon of the 20th, Nelson's heavy with disappointment once again, for the fourth time now, it looks like he's misjudged. He has misguessed at his enemy's movements. However, Villeneuve had actually spent the whole of the 19th, most of the 20th, just getting out of the, the tricky mouth of the harbour of Cadiz. And this reaches Nelson late on the 20th. It's clear there's going to be a battle the following day. And he remarked with bloody foreshadowing to two young midshipmen, quote, This day or tomorrow will be a fortunate day for one of you young men, end quote. The French fleet saw that a fight was inevitable. Villeneuve gave the order to form the expected line of battle, which Nelson was going to hurl his fleet at the next day. This was done with some confusion in this fleet, which had never really sailed as a body before. In the twilight, Captain Lucas of the Redoutable notes how, quote, At that moment, indeed, we were all very widely scattered. Nearly all of the ships had answered the Admiral's signal with flares, which made it impossible to tell which was the flagship. All I could do was to follow the motions of other ships near me, end quote. As darkness fell, a French officer reported quote, lights were continually seen at various points on the horizon. There were signals of the English fleet and lookout ships that felt the way for them. The reports of cannon repeated from time to time. The blue lights casting a bright and sudden glare in the midst of profound darkness. End quote. Between the two fleets, the British frigates were herring back and forth, launching signal flares, firing guns like sheepdogs shepherding these two fleets together. Midshipman Hercules Robinson. Aboard one such ship, the Urialis, calls, quote, When we had brought the two fleets fairly together, we took our place between the two lines of lights, as a cab might in Regent Street. The watch was called, and Captain Blackwood turned in quietly to wait for morning, End quote. So as I leave you, I would like you to place yourselves in the shoes, or should I say the bare feet, of either a French, Spanish, British sailor. All of their experiences of this night were probably much the same on watch that night in the eerie silence of a calm sea punctuated occasionally by the flat rumble of a gun lit by the ghostly light of flares in an anonymous patch of ocean off Cape Trafalgar that would be for the next 24 hours home to the life and death struggles of 50,000 men. Thank you very much for listening to this first series of Pedestals. This podcast is totally independent. I make it in my free time. So if you'd like to support, then please head over to my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash pedestals. Covering expenses of books and coffee and so forth would be a brilliant start. But the more support I get from you guys, the more time I can justify reading books and blathering into my microphone and making episodes. If you've got any questions at all or you want to point out any glaring errors and I I will try to make corrections um, or if you just want to get in touch, you can reach me on pedestalspodcast at gmail.com. Links to all of this uh, are going to be in the episode description. This podcast is written, presented and edited by me, Peter Dewhurst. A massive thank you goes out to uh, Fiona Wilson and to Brendan O'Rourke for their work on the logo, cover, illustration, whatever it's called. Uh, Thanks also to all of the proper historians whose work I have cannibalised and scavenged from. A full list of sources is in the episode description. See you next time.